Well, tonight we are finishing up in our series that we've been in for the past few weeks um, called Uprising, Cultivating a Revolutionary Prayer Life. Um, and we've basically, in this series, been looking at like what does it mean to live a life of prayer um, that not only deepens our relationship with Jesus, but somehow like actually impacts the city, somehow stands against the disorder of this world. And for most of us, we're probably pretty excited, right, about seeing um, a flourishing city. Um, but the idea of actually having to pray to get there um, feels a bit overwhelming sometimes. And so the title of my talk tonight um, that I've been given is Intercessory Prayer and the Flourishing of the City, um, which is a lovely title. Um, but intercession, what does it mean? It basically means praying on other people's behalf. Richard Foster, he puts it like this, if we truly love people, we will desire for them far more than it is within our power to give them. And this will lead us to prayer. It's basically standing in the gap between heaven and earth and asking for God's kingdom to come. Like praying for our cities, for our work colleagues, for our streets. Um, not in like an abstract way, just to see generic blessings, but to see actual like concrete change in people's lives. And my sense is the reason I'm like excited to speak on this tonight is because I think we're at a moment um, in our city, in our church life, where God is calling us to learn to pray like this. You know, we've kind of tried everything humanly possible, haven't we, to reach the city. Um, I'm, I remember in my home church, there was this, this club called um, the Missional Felt Banner Making Group, like really random. Um, my, I myself was in another little group um, and it was called Devotion in Motion, which was wonderful. Very proud of that name. Um, and basically it was like a hybrid between like action songs and like prophetic dance. And like we would get up on stage, we'd do our little skit and we'd genuinely think like revival was going to fall at that moment. Um, and it never came, unfortunately. Um, and there's been genuine ideas as well, right? Like incredibly thought through plans, strategies, events, really amazing stuff with genuine hearts behind it. But we haven't quite seen the impact that we've longed for. And I just sense um, that we're in a moment where God is saying, are you going to learn what it means to pray? Because the kingdom of God, it doesn't rely on competency or ability. It relies on faithful, humble, simple prayers. Like we're at a moment in our history where our city needs us to learn to pray. And one city that learned to pray um, was Leipzig. Um, and in the 1980s, uh, modern day Germany was divided in two parts, into East and into West. And East Germany was under communist rule. And um, it was part of what was known as the Iron Curtain. And the communist regime impacted um, and controlled all aspects of people's lives. And perhaps the most famous symbol of that time was the Berlin Wall. And yet on the 9th of November 1989, the Berlin Wall um, came down after peaceful protests. And shortly after the reunification of Germany took place. And seven years before the fall of the Berlin Wall, in 1982, in a little city in Leipzig in East Germany, Pastor Christian Führer set up a prayer meeting. And he loved his city, um, and it deeply pained him the prevailing fear that was in the culture around him. And so he set up these prayers for peace. And basically what they were was every Monday evening, he um, and people who kind of were invited turned up to the church to pray for peace in their city. Every Monday evening without fail. And on many occasions, like fewer than a dozen people showed up. Um, and because it, there was hardly anyone going, basically the East German authorities, they just didn't think it would make any impact at all. And they let it continue. 
But what happened is that um, Pastor Fuhrer, he would put a, um, a placard outside the church saying prayers for peace. And it just tapped into something in the city, this, this hope that was on that board. And basically, um, more and more people started to attend these meetings. Like it started to grow. And uh, so much so that the authorities got involved, they started to threaten and put the pressure on the pastor to stop these meetings. There were beatings, there were arrests made. And yet people still turned up. And everything came to a head on the 7th of October, 1989. The authorities by this point had branded this a counter-revolution. And an article appeared in the local newspaper, basically saying that if anyone showed up next Monday, that the um, revolution would be put down by whatever means necessary. And doctors basically visited Pastor Fuhrer, like begging him not to do it, but saying, we're going to set up emergency clinics anyway, because they basically feared that a massacre was about to happen. And on Monday evening, like the night came, like the tension in the street is palpable. No one quite knows what's going to happen. Armed police start lining the streets. And yet 8,000 people crowd into St. Nicholas Church that night to pray for peace. And then 70,000 people gather in the city in solidarity. And after an hour-long service, um, Pastor Christian Vera, he leads the people out of the church. They're clutching lit candles and they start walking around the city just saying, no violence. We are the people. Like the tension is mounting. The police are there, armed and ready. And yet at the decisive moment where they should have fired, where they should have put down this illegal protest... They stand aside and they let them march. And when asked later, why didn't you fire? Why was this not a massacre? Um, the East German official, he just turns to the person interviewing him and he says, we were prepared for everything but for candles and prayer. And this proved to be one of the critical moments in the reunification of Germany. Like thousands of people had just been allowed to protest without fear. And this rippled across the country. More and more protests started happening. Other political moves took place. And exactly a month later, the Berlin Wall fell. Like the history of that country completely changed. And Pastor Führer, when he was interviewed, like years later in his life, they basically said to him, why on earth did you start up a prayer meeting? In 1982, when no one was showing up, why did you keep going? And he just simply says this, we did it because the church has to do it. And, you know, we might not have physical walls in this city, but there are so many invisible walls calling, causing division right now. Like there's, they're causing oppression. They're causing pain. And it is the call of the church throughout the ages of me and you right now to do something about it. Like often when we talk about intercessory prayer, we talk about what does that look like? How do we do it? But actually, like we often forget why we do it. And this is the reason why we do it, because our cities change when the people of God learns what it means to pray. Like when we persevere in intercession, the church has become outposts of hope in the city. You know, and there are so many other important steps to seeing change. And I'm not dismissing any of the practical things that we should do. But I honestly believe that if we want to see lasting transformation in this city, if we want to see this city come to life, prayer has to be the priority. Because when we pray, the impossible starts to happen. But if you're anything like me, like I passionately believe that prayer um, is the answer for things. I passionately believe it. Um, 
And yet, when I come home from a long day at work, um, I kind of get home, this is my confession to you, I watch like five episodes of Friends back to back and have absolutely no time at all to pray. Like, and it's frustrating. How does prayer go from something that's on my to-do list, something that I want to do, to actually a way of life that's bringing life to the city? What does that look like? How do we pray? And the good news is that we're in really good company when we start asking these questions. Um, this is something that Christians throughout the ages have wrestled with, this question of like, how do we do this stuff? And we're just going to um, read um, when the disciples basically ask this same question to Jesus. And it's found in Luke chapter 11. So if you've got a Bible, feel free to turn there. We're going to read from just verse 1. So it's Luke 11, starting from verse 1. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. Lead us not into temptation. Then Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me. I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked. My children are in bed. I can't get up and give you bread because of friendship. Yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. It's a bold passage, isn't it? And yet within this this kind of passage, in verse 2, there's this incredible moment where Jesus is basically giving us this beautiful prayer, let your kingdom come. And by Jesus saying this, he's basically um, recognizing that the world isn't as it should be, right? We know that. That the kingdom of God, it isn't fully here yet. It started to break in um, to this world when Jesus came. But it's not here in all of its fullness yet. This place where there's no more sickness, suffering, pain, death, crying. It's not here in all of its fullness. And the thing that Jesus says is the way, the primary way that we usher the kingdom of God in is through praying. It's through asking for it. And we're probably pretty familiar with that line, right? It kind of over familiar with it almost. But it is one of the most powerful prayers in history. Like it's the prayer that's toppled dictatorships. Like it sparked the abolition of the slave trade. It sustained people during the civil rights movement in the 1960s. And it's the prayer that Jesus has given us today to pray for London. And the idea of a flourishing city, it can sound kind of great, but pretty abstract. So what does it actually look like for you? What does a flourishing city look like? Just imagine going into your workplace, into your uni halls, into the places you live. Like, what would it look like if God's kingdom fully came in that space? Like, what would the atmosphere feel like? What would people, um, how would they interact with each other? Like, that's the kind of stuff that we're contending for. That's the kind of stuff that I mean when we're talking about praying for the city. So how do we take this theology? How do we take it and make it real? And there are just two key things I want to look at tonight when it comes to intercession. The first is praying. um, Prayer is a priority. And the second is cultivating soft hearts. So firstly, prayer as a priority. 
You know, when we look at the life of Jesus, he is forever like sneaking off, hiding up mountains to try and find a space to pray. He's like running away from crowds. He's doing whatever he can um, to find a space to pray. Like we read that in verse one before he does any of his teaching. This is what he seems to do. And we can kind of know that prayer changes stuff, right? But um, actually like subliminally, although we believe it's important, it's really easy to actually believe the primary way that we usher in the kingdom of God is through hard work. But the thing is that when hard work is the primary way that the kingdom of God's ushered in, like competency and ability become our idols. And what happens in that place is that everything depends on us. Like the size of our dreams, they have to get smaller because the size of them are determined in our ability to make it happen. You know, we we don't pray because we don't need to. We can achieve everything that we want by ourselves. You know, the thing that God wants to do in London today is beyond what we could ask for or imagine, but the starting place has to be prayer. The question isn't like, are you good enough? Um, Have you got the right skill set? Are you great at like strategies? It's, are you available and are you willing to make this a priority? And I just think there's an invitation tonight um, for everyone here to fully lean again, the truth that it's not by power, like it's not by might, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord. In the passage I've just read, um, the translation into English, it doesn't quite kind of fully capture the Greek meaning. Um, And it's basically this idea that we're to keep knocking, that we're to keep asking. We're not to move away from the door until um, it opens. And I just, I felt as I was preparing for this talk that there were some people here today who used to be dreamers. And um, people used to think you might be slightly naive, naive with it. But you actually wore it as a badge of honor, um, that you had high faith, you had God-sized dreams. But there's some stuff's happened and you haven't seen those dreams realized. And I actually, I wonder if there's actually someone here this week, you were called a realist and it just hit you because you've realized that your faith has shrunk for what God could do. And you're just exhausted because hard work has become the way that you do things. And I just sense that God tonight, he just wants to meet you in that space. He wants to reawaken old dreams that were in you as a kid. You know, kingdom plans will always look impossible to those without faith. So prayer, it has to be the priority. And secondly, intercession requires soft hearts. Um, A few chapters later in Luke 19, Jesus, he arrives just um, before the city of Jerusalem and he basically looks out over the city and the thing that he does is that he weeps. You know, if you flick through the Bible, you will come across some awesome Sunday school classics um, like Nehemiah, Hannah, Daniel, awesome people, great intercessors. And before you see their prayers, what you see before that in the verses hidden before is that they mourned, that when they saw the pain of others, that they wept, that they allowed themselves to feel that pain. And yet we live in a culture, right, uh, that's in pain, but it's desperately trying to avoid it. Like we consume, we self-medicate with drink, drugs, Netflix, work, and rather than actually healthily processing that pain, we just numb our hearts. And what happens is that our hearts become hard, not just to our own pain, but to the pain of others as well. And it is really hard to pray with hard hearts. You know, when comfort is the dominant value in a culture, feeling others' pain will always be the enemy. 
And there's this incredible um, book by Dr. Paul Brand. Um, it's called The Gift of Pain, and it came out um, years and years ago, but it's a phenomenal book about how leprosy works. He was a medical doctor, and he did lots of research on it. And for those of you who don't know, what leprosy does is it attacks the pain receptors in your body so that you can't feel pain anymore. And so actually most of the injuries that happen from, um, and, and actually deaths, unfortunately, from leprosy is actually not because of the disease itself. It's because they can't feel when they're hurt. And so infections spread um, and things get really serious really quickly. So Dr. Brand he discovers basically how leprosy actually works. For years, they, they can't work out what's happening. And he describes this one guy that he meets. Um, and each day he comes to him and basically his fingers, there's really deep lacerations on his fingers. And he wakes up each morning with really kind of bloody hands and with deep lacerations on them. And he d doesn't know what's happening. And neither can Dr. Brand. He can't work out what's going on. He doesn't know if it's part of the disease. He doesn't know what it is. And so what they decide to do is basically just do an observational study. And so they go with the man to his house and they basically just watch him while he sleeps to try and work out what on earth is going on. And just, just prepare yourself for this. It's, it's pretty um, grim. But the guy, basically, when he was sleeping at night, rats would come and they were biting the tops of his finger. They were gnawing at his hands. Like, absolutely awful, right? Like, the guy, he's not doing anything wrong. He just doesn't wake up because he doesn't, doesn't feel... And what Dr. Paul Brown concludes is that whilst pain is never wanted, and we shouldn't go after pain in the slightest, we don't want to go after this stuff, but what pain does is it tells us that something's wrong. Like, we never want to feel pain, right? But it allows us to know when we need healing. Like, it wakes us up to the truth that everything isn't right. You know, when you can't feel, when your heart is numb, you will have an inability to respond, like that rat, it could have easily been taken out. You know, you'd have woken up and you'd have, you know, yeah, I mean, I'd have screamed a lot. But, you know, you'd have, you'd have been easily taken it out. It's no match for a human being. But not if you can't feel. Not if you're sleeping through it. Like for so many of us, it's actually the saturation with the brokenness of this world that's led to numbness. Just like walk down the street, walk down Pentonville Road and you are confronted with so much pain. You just scroll through the BBC News app before you go to bed, and it, it's, it hurts to read those stories. So we've become desensitized with them. We've stopped believing that anything could possibly change. And what has happened, like the tragedy of this, is that the pain of our cities become normal. Like the, the oppression that people are feeling is normal to us. Like we have to wake up. So how do we do this? How do we wake up numb hearts? And I think it's really simple. I think the first step is we simply ask him. We ask God. We come before him in brutal honesty. And we learn to tell him how we're really doing. Like we confess our own pain to him. We allow him to heal us. We develop intimacy with him. And when we do that, he starts to share his heart with us. Like the deeper that we go with intimacy in Jesus, with Jesus, the further out we'll be propelled in intercession. And for me, like this has been my story into intercession. Um, as a kid, I was like super confident and I, um, I, loved, I loved the prophetic dances on stage and I like loved all that kind of stuff. I was pretty loud. Um, I think my parents would have called it like being really stubborn, but I basically was just deeply self-assured, I like to think. Um, but through my teenage years, like my confidence was really knocked, not for any particular reason, but it just, um, I basically started to find myself shrinking back. And it was especially around the area of my voice. I found it really, really hard to speak up. 
And I was, I was deeply terrified of being misunderstood. And so my voice, it felt like this barrier, like public speaking, this would have absolutely terrified me. Um, and in my first year of university, all of this stuff just came to a head. And I had this year of just awful anxiety. Um, I couldn't walk into lecture rooms. Like it totally dominated my life. Um, and it was at my worst when I was around people trying to communicate. I just felt really voiceless. And I just remember one morning sitting um, in my university bedroom, sitting on a chair, looking out of a window, and I just felt the Holy Spirit just kind of show up and speak to me. And I basically felt him say, Emma, you've got two options right now. Like you can either choose to let me in and pour out your pain to me, or you can choose to continue to numb your heart, to continually let this like anger just surface, like just simmer under the surface. And you can choose to harden your heart. And so I, cho- I chose to pour my heart out to God. And what that looked like was basically each morning, spending a few minutes just sitting in his presence. And the stuff that came out wasn't pretty. Um, you know, I, I prayed the honest prayers. I told God how I was really doing. There was a lot of, you know, I was really angry at God. There was a lot of frustration. But as I um, allowed him to speak to me, as I sat in his presence, as I just cried some days, over time... God started to share his heart with me. And what he showed me was like how he actually felt about London. He showed me how deeply he loved this city. And more than that, like in that my moment of pain, he was actually inviting me to raise my voice in prayer to change stuff. You know, the thing that I struggled with the most, like was most embarrassed about, felt most held back by, was actually something that he wanted to use to bring about change in the city. And over that period, I found my voice. Like where I felt voiceless in the world, I couldn't even speak up in lectures. I found God inviting me to come before his throne and to advocate on behalf of others. And as I carried on doing that, like somehow through like fumbled prayers, I was praying it behind closed doors. No one could see. Things were actually changing. Like I was at my most broken and yet life was breaking out around me. You know, time and time again, we see throughout history that God often uses the most broken in their deepest moment of crisis to bring about extraordinary life in a city. And so if you feel at your most broken today, at your most fragile, at your most overwhelmed, there is an invitation to intimacy with Jesus that won't only heal your heart, but that will heal the hearts of city. And it's just worth noting, um, if you read the stories of intercessors, um, which is niche to do, but I I do it, I love that. Um, If you read those stories, so many of them are people who have struggled to be heard by the world. And for me, like this was purely down to my self-confidence. It was down to my anxiety. Um, but for others, it's because of oppression, of not being allowed to speak up. But yet, rather than allowing their hearts to grow cold in those moments, they have run to God and they've poured their hearts out to him instead. And isn't it just like Jesus to give special honor to those whom no one else listens to? Like where so often these people haven't been able to change things by sitting in seats of power yet they found they have an audience with the king of kings. That what the world has overlooked, it's been these people who have ushered in the moves of the spirit. That those unrelenting prayers have seen people saved, darkness held back, and the kingdom of God released, all from behind closed doors when no one else was watching. 
You know, in a city that's desensitized, like when we're confronted with issues, often the response doesn't move beyond anger and frustration. You know, we blame others, we stand apart, and the cycle just continues. And yet as Christians, as the church, we're called to do something about it. You know, we follow the movement of God who doesn't stand back and stand at a distance, but he runs towards his creation. He doesn't cast judgment from heaven. He gets down into the dirty mess of humanity to redeem it. We're not called to stand apart from our city and judge from a distance, but to step in, to stand with, to pray for the impossible to happen. Like when everyone else has given up hope, the church is needed. You know, and when we immerse um, ourselves in the story of Jesus and pray from that place, like that's the kind of faith that sees dividing walls broken down. Like that's the kind of faith that sees extraordinary life break out. Pete James, he, he started this series by talking about uh, being people who are kind of, so this is confusing, but he's talking, what does he say? Being people of the eighth day in the seventh, um, which was this beautiful analogy, but if you weren't here, that won't make any sense at all. Um, but it's basically this idea of being people uh, who bring the life of the kingdom into the everyday ordinary mess of humanity. You know, when we think about praying for our city, it's easy to focus our prayers on everything that seems wrong. And whilst we're called to feel the pain, we're not called just to be echoes. We're called to be voices of hope. Like people who prophetically see beyond the current landscape to what could be and then commit to boldly praying it in. Like we get to be bold in our prayers and just want to take off the pressure when it comes to praying. Like often we can feel straightjacketed into not quite knowing how to pray. There isn't a wrong way to pray. <laughs> go for it. Be bold when you pray. Don't worry about the, you know, being deeply theologically incorrect. Just go for it. The spirit will guide you in your prayers. And living in the reality of what Jesus has done for us on the cross is absolutely crucial to intercession because without that, we're basically just empathizing. And we'll very quickly feel overwhelmed and overburdened. We'll take the stuff on us. But we're told in Hebrews that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father and he's right now interceding for you and me. What an incredible picture. Right now, Jesus is interceding for each one of us here. And we're told in Romans that the Holy Spirit is in us and he helps us to do this stuff. Like when we pray from the reality of the resurrection, as spirit-filled people who love this city, we have incredible authority. The kind of authority that changes the very course of history. Walter Wink, um, which is also a great name, um, he comes up with this brilliant quote, which I just want to read to you. Intercession is spiritual defiance of what is in the name of what God has promised. History belongs to the intercessors who believe the future into being. Even a small number of people firmly committed to the new inevitability on which they have fixed their imaginations can decisively affect the shape the future takes. It's awesome, isn't it? Um, so just as I come into land, like practically, what's the next step? And I just think, like, kind of lastly... The thing um, I'd love to encourage us to do is, like, are we prepared to be interrupted? In Luke 11, right at the start of um, this talk, I read about the parable about the grumpy neighbor. Um, and to be honest, I, I feel for this guy. I think he gets a bit of a bad rap because, you know, if someone knocks on my door at midnight, I'm going to be pretty grumpy as well. But Jesus is basically saying, if you can get a grumpy neighbor to answer your prayer, like how much more can you get a loving, generous, heavenly father to answer your prayer? But the thing that I've always missed about 
um, this passage is that the reason we go relentlessly knocking on the neighbor's door, it's because of someone else. Like I've always read that passage and I've interpreted it as like, I'm hungry, I need bread, so I'm going to go and knock on the door. And I think that totally applies. I think um, that's so right to do, to bring our needs to Jesus. Absolutely. But it's actually bigger than that. This passage is about other people coming to us who are hungry. And I think we're in a moment when our city has started to knock on the door of the church. Like there's this hunger that's starting to stir in people, this desire to find out more, this desire that like there must be more to life than this. Our city's hungry and it's searching for the bread of life. And this moment we find ourselves in matters. Because if the flourishing of our city is somehow disconnected from our story, then the arrival of a friend at midnight, it will only ever be an interruption. But if somehow like the flourishing of the city is deeply connected, deeply embedded to our story, when we hear that faint knocking of a friend, when we hear the cry of the city, when we feel the pain, we embrace the interruption and we'll get on our knees. So I guess I just want to ask you tonight, are you willing to be interrupted, to have life shaken up a bit? Like when we allow our hearts to be soft, our lives will look different. You know, for Pastor Christian Fuhrer, the decision to let the city into his story, it took his life on a totally different course than he thought it would. That the journey of God, of following God, is always one that will lead us out onto the margins. And I don't know where you're at today, but I just wonder if for some of us there's this holy discontent stirring deep within us. We've realized actually we've settled for a personal view of salvation, where it's become about kind of my needs, my faith, my prayer life. But actually God's wanting to do something impossible through you. And I just sense that there's a call to hope tonight. Like we're being invited to shape the very destiny of London, like to tear down invisible walls but it's going to require, require us to shake off normality. You know, and from the conversations that I've been having with people over the past few weeks, um, this is actually start, like starting to stir already. And it's, it's really exciting. Like this hunger for the kingdom of God to break out is bigger than the desire for like a well-ordered, neat life. And if that's you tonight, I would love to pray for you just to pour kind of fuel on the fire that God is already stirring, that we might trade our like well-structured lives for the expansive good news of the kingdom of God, like for such a time as this. And these kind of lives, they are way beyond comfort zones, um, but he is the God of the impossible, the kind of God that would use a Monday night prayer meeting attended by 12 people to take down an oppressive regime. Like in the kingdom of God, our lives are always meant to be about staying on top of things. Like we get to shape the very course of history and the place that that's going to start is in prayer. Like extraordinary things happen when we don't give up on our city, when we don't become adjusted to its brokenness, but live as people of hope, imagining and praying into being the kingdom of God.